0: that I had rebuilt the wall. And see, that was the whole purpose. He'd come back from Persia to rebuild the wall because uh, the wall of Jerusalem had been torn down, the defense had been torn down, the temple which had been re- rebuilt was vulnerable, and they really couldn't establish the people in the city the way that they needed to until the wall was rebuilt. Well, it says, when the rest of our enemies found out that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, there was, there was no area that, that had not been repaired. It was a fortified wall, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Everything had been done. Wall was completed. They just hadn't hung the gates. Well, when you you hang the gates, you know what? Turn out the lights, the party's over. I mean, it's a clean sweep, and it's over and done with. So see, this is the fourth quarter. There's about two minutes left, and they're going to hang the gates. So Sanballat and Tobiah put on a full court press. They're going to do everything they can do to stop this thing from happening. So what they do here, and, and, and when I say what they do, what you need to understand is what Satan does. Because Satan is the one who is against the work of God. Satan is the one who is, um, who is insane, and he is the one who is in rebellion, and he is the one that is devoting himself to uh, uh, in a futile attempt Uh, to frustrate and to stop the work of God. Uh, same Satan that was involved in this is the same Satan that goes to and fro about the earth today. Uh, uh, He's real. He's active. Uh, C.S. Lewis said there are two mistakes you can make about the devil. One is to have an unhealthy interest in who he is and his activity. And some Christians can get that way. They're always studying books on Satan. They're always you know, looking for Satan's strategies, they're, they're sort of consumed with Satan. That's a real mistake. We are to fix our eyes on who? Jesus. You don't fix your eyes on Satan, you fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, Lewis said, the first mistake is that you get an unhealthy, excessive interest in Satan. The, the second mistake that you, we can make is that you deny his existence. Now, Satan doesn't care which extreme you go to just as long as you're at one extreme or the other, you see. uh, The Bible speaks of Satan as a fallen angel. He was the chief of the angels. When he rebelled against God and when he fell, he took a third of the angels with him. And there is an unseen world. There is a spirit world that we cannot see, but that is very, very real and very, very active. Uh, There are fallen angels, and there are angels who are instruments and messengers of God. And the Bible speaks a lot, quite frankly, about these angels. Some of them are well known. Uh, Gideon is well known. Michael is well known. But there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands that we don't know their names. They just do the work of God. Uh, So when we say that Sambalat and Tobiah and these other men were uh, uh, gathered against Nehemiah and the Jews, they were, they were the human instruments, but ultimately there was a spiritual warfare that was going on in the heavenly places. Satan was behind this. Now, this full court press, uh, these guys have showed their hands before. They, they threatened to attack Nehemiah and the Jews. They said, we're going to kill you. So as they're rebuilding the wall and they're halfway done, Nehemiah has everybody strap on a sword. And as they're assigned to their areas along the wall to rebuild it, uh, they're ready to fight. Some guys are, some guys are, are, are you know slapping bricks together and stones and all that jazz, and other guys are ready uh, with, with a sword. They all got swords on, and they're ready to go. And they got a bugler, and if there's an attack at a certain place on the wall, the bugler will blow, and everybody goes to that spot. Uh, these guys had showed their hand before that they were, uh, they were united against the Jews. But now, here's a change in strategy, because what's going to happen is Uh, Satan uses Sanballat and Tobiah to specifically now not go after the Jews, but go after the leader. Uh, What's going to happen here in this full court press is that they're going to go after Nehemiah. They're going to go after the point guard. Sometimes in a full court press, whoever the the, the top shooter is, you'll double team the guy. And if you're really desperate, you'll triple team the guy. Well, what they're going to do is quintuple this guy. Uh, they're all going after him. They're all going to try and stop him. And, and, and he's the target now. You, you realize that about leadership, don't you? Is that when you're given a position of leadership, uh, you become a target. Um, it's especially true in, in, in spiritual things because if the enemy, catch this, if the enemy can discredit a leader, the work that that leader is doing comes to a halt. We've seen graphic examples of this, haven't we? Um, we had a, we had a, a pastor's retreat uh, Monday and Tuesday. And as we were, uh, you know, having some time down there at David's place, uh, we, we, you know, different conversations are going on. On one of the one of the conversations that came up, and Taylor was involved in this, and Chuck was, and David, and some of the other guys. Uh, was a, a well-known teacher that um, um, that that Chuck was familiar with in his early years, and David was familiar with. Taylor was familiar with. I wasn't that familiar with the guy because I'm a lot younger than those guys. <laughs> Lou really liked that one. Yeah, you like that. Did you leave your walker at the door when you came in? <laughs> We'll keep our eye on it for you there. All right, left it in the Okay. It was a guy that I had heard of, and uh, a, a guy who was an absolutely fabulous teacher. Fabulous. A genius. Brilliant in the scriptures. All these guys, to one degree or another, had been influenced by the work that God had given him to do and by his ministry. And what happened to this guy? He became, over the years, thoroughly, thoroughly and totally discredited. And the work which he was doing, quite frankly, came to a halt. Brilliant, brilliant guy, gifted, remarkably gifted, doing a great work. Thousands of people are coming to hear this guy. Thousands of people are benefiting from his gift. But then one day, it was pretty much over. Oh, uh, there was still activity going on. But it it was a hollow shell of what it used to be. Ichabod was written on the door of that place where he ministered. You know, in the Old Testament, when the glory left the temple, Ichabod was written over it, which means the glory has departed. The work was finished. It's a tragedy. When a leader is discredited, it's a tragic thing. So does it not make sense that one of the things that the enemy is going to try to do is to discredit the leader? Absolutely. That's what's happening here. It's the full court press. They're doing everything they can do to bring this guy down. Uh, uh, Interestingly enough, the strategy that's going to be employed, when you just read this chapter at first blush, Uh, what stands out to you are the critics of Nehemiah. Yeah, He had these enemies, he had these critics that were always on his case. And and at first pass, you'd think, well, this is a chapter about his critics. I don't think so. I think this is a chapter about uh, the temptations that were placed by the enemy before Nehemiah in an attempt to discredit him. Uh, and, And even these temptations when you first read it, are somewhat subtle. And they're somewhat below the surface. But it breaks up, it breaks up into, uh, into three temptations that Nehemiah faced in this chapter. That's what this full court press was. It was a full court press to tempt Nehemiah in order to discredit him and stop the work on the wall. And they were 95% there. Uh, Thomas Watson said this. He says, Satan times, Satan's time of tempting usually comes after a victory. These guys had had victory. The wall had been completed. That's a victory. Now all they got to do, now all they got to do is put the whipped cream, you know, on the Sunday. I mean, you got the bluebell on there. You, you got the nuts. You got the strawberries. You got the bananas. You got anything else you want to load on there? And the last thing that's needed now is just to put the whipped cream on there. But the, but it's done. Satan's time of tempting usually comes after a victory. And the reason is because then one thinks that he is secure. When we have been at our duties, we tend to think all is done, and we tend to grow remiss. Watson says, and we tend to lose the zeal and strictness as before the victory was won. Just as a soldier who, after a battle, leaves off his armor, not once dreaming of an enemy. Satan watches his time, and when we least suspect, then he throws in a temptation. Well, that's what everybody's saying about Iraq. We've seen some great stuff today, but, but it's been said by more than one. Uh, and I saw Erie Fleischer on today. How's the president feel about this? Well, he's, he's, he's very pleased and he's very grateful, but he's also cautious because there's still work that remains. See, he understands we're at a vulnerable. We pulled down the statues and we pulled into town, but we're still vulnerable, you see. It's when you have a victory and you think you're not. It's when you take your armor off. It's when you take the, the helmet. I, I saw one of these uh, tanks pulling up in front of that hotel today. And there's this uh, journalist, and, he, and the guy jumps down off the tank, and he walks right up to this guy with a microphone. And I have to tell you, when I saw him do that, I got nervous. I thought, you know, I hope someone doesn't plug this guy, because there are still snipers around. there. Uh, you guys hear what I'm saying. See, in our lives, that's what the enemy does. When you've just experienced a victory, you're very, very uh, susceptible, and you're very, very vulnerable. What we're going to see in this chapter is not one temptation, we're going to see three. About 400 years ago, William Gurnall wrote these words. He said, and and pardon the King James, but he lived during King James. So this is how these guys talked, okay? They dressed weird and they talked weird. But try to translate this. He says, if thou dost not stumble at the first arrow, the devil has another, the devil hath another, at hand to throw in your way. He is not so unskillful a hunter as to go with one single shot into the field and therefore expect him as soon as he has discharged one and missed thee to let fly at thee with a second. Did you guys get that? In other words, if you miss one arrow, don't think you're out of danger because he's got another one coming at you and another one behind that. There are going to be three arrows in this full court press. Let's look at the first one. Uh, The first one that I see is in basically uh, verses 2 through 5. And here's what it is. Nehemiah is tempted by an invitation to compromise. I'll give that to you again. Nehemiah is tempted by an invitation to compromise. These guys find out the wall's done. All they got to do is put the doors up. Verse 2. It was at that time that Sambalat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, come, let us meet together at Kepharim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. They invite this guy to a conference. What kind of conference? A peace conference. That's exactly what it is. They they want to get him out of Jerusalem about 26 miles north, which basically is in the territory just on the edge of what uh, Nehemiah governs and it's pretty much into um, Sambalat's territory, so they want to get him out of Jerusalem, get him out of his turf. Let's get a conference. Let's meet together. Why do they want to meet together? Because they want to establish peace. That's why. They they want to work a treaty. They want a broker with this guy. Um, but but uh, Nehemiah is no fool, and. He sees immediately through their invitation, and he says, but they were planning to harm me. Uh, uh, Literally, they were planning to do evil to me. Now, this is the approach. Notice his response in verse 3. So I sent messengers to them saying, and I love this, this is great. He says, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. And he was doing a great work. He was doing the work of Almighty God. I'm doing a great work and I can't come to your peace conference. I can't come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Now, catch verse 4. And they sent messages to me four times in this manner. Four different times they come back to this guy and say, come and meet with us in this city and uh, we'll we'll have some talks and we will arrange some terms. And we will have peace. What this was, was an invitation to compromise. Um, Four times, Nehemiah responded in the same way, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Now, why wouldn't he meet with these guys? So, hey, let me ask you something. What's wrong with compromise? What's wrong with compromise? My gosh. That's the name of the game in the United States Senate. That's actually, it isn't the name of the game in the United States Senate. It's called stalling. It's called obstruction, is what it's called. Um, John Kerry came out today and said that he would only nominate justices for the Supreme Court who were pro-choice. Well, at least he's got a conviction. I'll grant him that. It's the wrong conviction. He couldn't be any more wrong. What he's saying is, I'll only appoint those who've got blood all over their hands. And he's got blood on his hands. And if you support people who do that, you've got blood on your hands. You guys getting this? Yeah. Okay, just, just checking. I'm trying to be subtle here tonight. Yeah, we got it. Okay. Now, we've got a situation going on right now where there's a filibuster in the Senate. Why is there a filibuster? Because you've got uh, uh, Estrada, and they're worried that Estrada is pro-life. They're worried because Estrada, they they think, might want to make it illegal to take the life of an innocent baby in its mother's womb. So they're filibustering. And now they've put Owens back up, and they're going to probably filibuster her. Why? Because. Uh, because you see, they have their standards. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're wrong standards. But you see, uh, you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, we, we are taught so many times that compromise is a good thing. Compromise can be a good thing as long as you're not talking about moral, uh, as long as you're not talking about violating moral truth. There are situations where you cannot compromise. There are situations where it's wicked to compromise. There are situations where it's evil to compromise. Uh, there are situations where it is wicked to appease uh, and, and to give in and to not stand and fight. That's the whole basis of what we talked about a few weeks ago on the just war, how a war can be just. If you see someone being attacked. You see a neighbor being attacked, and you don't go to his aid and help him. You have failed to demonstrate the love of Christ, you see. You have not gone to their aid. You have not loved your neighbor as yourself. Um, uh, These guys wanted Nehemiah to compromise, and he refused to do it. Now, let me show you why he refused to do it. Because these guys had already shown their cards, and he knew their condition, and he knew their motives, and he knew their heart. Flip over to Psalm 1 if you would. Now, you, you compromise with your neighbor, you got an issue with a fence or something, You con- eh, work it out. Compromise. Figure it out. Probably not a moral issue, you know? You guys, are, there's a place to compromise. There's a, there's a place to give a little. There's a place to get a win-win going. But there are times when you don't compromise, especially when these guys have shown their hands and they had showed their hand, they threatened to kill the Jews. Look at Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. All three descriptions fit Sambalat, Tobiah, and their coalition. Uh, They were wicked, they were sinners, and they were scoffers. They had no interest in doing what was right they had no interest in the things of God. They had no interest uh, uh, in obedience to God. So for that reason, he refuses to waste his time. He refuses to meet with them. Just refuses to do it. Um, <clears throat> I was talking with a guy recently who's uh, a guy in his 20s and uh, he became aware just about uh, a year ago now that his father, uh, from the time he first married his mother, actually, even when they were engaged, uh, has been sexually involved with uh, scores of other women. And his father uh, and mother you know, took him to church, Bible teaching churches. If they lived in Frisco. They'd probably go to church here. And his dad served on the board and all this different stuff. And uh, uh, this This has come out and it it, it is documented and it's not a one time situation it's been well they don't even know how many women it has been and uh, when he became aware of this uh he went and confronted his father and of course his father denied it have nothing to do with them uh, you know it's been going on for a year and uh, he called me last week and we were talking about the situation and he said you know i'm 'm concerned because that I'm not being loving enough to my father. And I said, said, you're being too loving. Because what you're doing is you're being codependent. And and what you're doing is, and and I understand your heart, because you want to have a relationship with your father. But you need to understand what your father has done is horribly wicked. What he's done to your mother, Uh, the the shame. Uh, uh, There's no repentance. There's a denial. He gets angry, if anything is alluded to. um, um, You're not being tough enough. You need to stand your ground. Uh, You don't need to have him over for dessert. He needs to feel the weight of his consequences because he's unrepentant. Uh, Don't make him feel comfortable. Uh, he, he, He has done something terrible. Uh, he's sitting in the seat of scoffers. What he has done is wicked, and there's absolutely no change of heart. There's there's a a rationalization and a defense for everything he's done. You don't need to be more loving. You need to stand on truth and let him feel the weight. Let him feel what it's like to not be with anybody on Christmas, because that was his choice. Now, when when he's broken and repentant, you bring a guy in, but not until then. But, but see, the father is trying to make this son feel bad because the son won't meet with him. And in essence, come and meet me halfway and we'll have, we'll, we'll, we'll have a peace conference. It's just like this, you see? And, and, and the tendency is to do it. But wait a minute. Who is this guy? What's his motive? Nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. Nehemiah wouldn't do it. Um, see, this was an invitation to cut. To compromise. You say, that was an invitation? It's an invitation to compromise truth. It's an invitation to compromise what is good and decent and right. Nehemiah refused to meet with them because he knew it was a total waste of time. He knew they would try to harm him. They already said they were trying to kill him. He wouldn't do it. Nehemiah didn't believe in unity at any price. You hear a lot of churches, and, and, and I even hear this sometimes at Promise Keepers. We need to break down the walls. Well, some you need to break down, some you don't. Some walls need to be there. There needs to be a wall between righteousness and wickedness. There needs to be a a wall between someone who's doctrinally correct and someone who isn't to protect the sheep. Some walls need to be there, you see? Well, we need unity. We need unity. Jesus prayed for unity, but Jesus did not put unity over truth. Our unity is based on truth. Our unity is not just based on unity. You guys getting this? Yes, sir. So what was this? This guy is a leader. He's invited to compromise. You guys hear what I'm saying? You can work with some people and all that, work with them, work some stuff. But when, they're, when, when truth is involved, when moral issues are involved, you don't compromise. You stand your ground. See, if the, enemy, <clears throat> if the enemy could get Nehemiah to compromise on truth, Nehemiah has just ceased to be a leader. And the hand of God will be removed from him. So how do you fight the temptation to compromise? Nehemiah, I got this written on red. I got red tonight on my notes. Not for you, for me. Because this is critical. Nehemiah defeated temptation by keeping his eye on the objective. Okay? When you're tempted to compromise, you defeat that temptation by keeping your eye on the objective. What was the objective that God had given him to do? To rebuild the wall and put up the gates. He says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. His eye was on the objective. He was doing the work that God had called him to do. If if compromise involves watering down truth, you don't do it. Not if you want the hand of God to bless your life and to bless your leadership. You you know what strikes me about this? Uh, With spiritual leaders... There's always a temptation to compromise biblical truth. Always. It's always the issue. Satan is always casting aspersion on God's word. Always. So in the garden, first time this guy shows up, he approaches the woman, which by the way, he subverted God's authority because the man was in authority over the woman. Then approach the guy, he approaches the woman. And he tempts her to eat of the fruit. And she says, God said, if we eat of the fruit, we'll die. What did he say? You shall not die. The very first thing he did was an attempt to compromise the truth, to compromise the word of God. And this happens all around us all the time in evangelical churches. And and if you come to this Bible study, you're probably wondering, why are you always talking about this? Because it's always going on. Because it's the primary way that the enemy works. He wants us to compromise the word of God. He wants us to water it down. And it's happening everywhere in the evangelical church. Now, are, are, there, places, are there places where uh, there are gray areas that the scriptures don't speak to, where there's room for one guy to have a conviction that's different from another guy? Sure, you bet there is. But on those issues where the scriptures are clear, we do not compromise. We don't compromise in order to get more people in the door. Because I'll tell you what. You compromise, you may get more people in the door, but you're not going to have more people spiritually mature. We do not compromise the truth of the Word of God. Let's go to the second temptation. Uh, Here it is. Number two, Nehemiah was tempted by the threat of slander. That's verses five through nine. He was tempted by the threat of of slander. Uh, let me get back to Nehemiah here. And you know, when you're, uh, when you're a leader, and depending on the uh, area of leadership that God has given to you, uh, you have a reputation, and to one degree or another, you're in the eye of the public. Uh, and, and you know, when, when, you, when you assume leadership, you're fair game, because people are going to come after you. People that don't like you, they're, they're going to I know a pastor in town this this week, uh, who uh, well I'll tell you who it was. It was over at Fellowship and Grapevine, uh, Ed Young. And and they had a service I was told last week, and to support the troops and you know one of the news stations, one of the TV stations, had was out there, and they had video and they showed it on the newscast and. Uh, but the, but the reporter showed their, you know, all these people there, and said so they had the service to support the troops and all that. But uh, in his remarks, uh, Ed Young said they supported the troops and the military, but that he did not agree with President Stand and that uh, well, that was exactly opposite what Ed had said. See, he did take, he did support the President Stand. So he makes a call down there. And they say, oh, well, we got, oh, you know, we'll, we'll, re, we'll correct it. No correction. You see. Uh, so, so you got some people that are saying, oh, well, you know, he, he. See, it's going to happen. I mean, it's happened to Chuck. It's probably happened to you at work. Is it, people are going to say, that they're going to slander you. See, that's a threat. Because nobody wants to be slandered. No one wants to be uh, taken through the alley with your reputation. But this is exactly what these guys say they're going to do. Um, let's look at it. verse, verse, uh, let's pick it up in verse four, and they sent messages to me four times in this matter, you know, come and meet with us, have the peace conference. And I answered them in the same way, four times, I'm not going to do it. Now catch this. Then Sambalat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time. So now they're making a fifth pass, but now he's going to do something different. This time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations. See, see they, didn't have, they didn't have the Dallas Morning News back then. They didn't have the New York Times. So they used these open letters, and they would post them. You know, put them up around, people could read it. So this is a threat, is what it is. Uh, in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geishmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall. And you... Nehemiah, are to be their king, according to these reports. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king is in Judah. Now, were any of these things true? No. But catch this. And now it will be reported to the king back in Persia, according to these reports. So now let us come and take counsel together. It's what you call blackmail, what you call extortion. You see? They're going to slander you. And let me tell you something. These kings back then, these guys didn't miss around. This king back in Persia, he finds out there was a rebellion. He's sending the boys in. They'll take care of this. Uh, They'll pull down your statue real quick, and they'll cut off your head. Not the statues head, your head. There was a very real threat to Nehemiah's life, not only to his reputation, but to his life. And nothing could be further from the truth. So come now, let us counsel together. Now here's his response. Then I sent a message to him saying, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us thinking... They will become discouraged, and here it is again. They'll become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Why did he say that? Strengthen my hands. Because he was going to finish the work. He wasn't going to be waylaid. He wasn't going to be deterred by, uh, by by another attempt to tempt him. See, you know what this one was? This threat of slander? The threat of slander was a temptation to fear. That's what it was. The enemy is always using fear. Somewhere I read, and, I, and I, haven't, I haven't done this myself, but somewhere I read that over 200 times in the scriptures, it says, fear not. The wording may change to one degree or another, but 200 times in the scriptures, there's the admonition, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Fear is a primary tool of the enemy. Primary. Uh, he'll use different, sir so it doesn't have to be slander. I mean, he'll, he'll use all kinds of different ways in, in order to intimidate us and to keep us from doing what's right. Uh, nobody wants controversy. Nobody wants their name dragged through the mud. Nobody wants uh, a public media circus. And, and there is pressure, you see, and this stuff's all tied together. So there's pressure to compromise. There's there's uh, there's a temptation to make an alliance. There's there's a temptation to make peace. Richard Sibbs once said this. He said Satan gives Adam an apple, and takes away paradise. Therefore, in all temptations, let us consider not what he offers but what we shall lose. See, we, we, you've you got to diagnose what the enemy's doing. Now, now, see, hey, you come and meet with us. Let's get together. We won't release this letter. Okay, what would that buy? It'd buy peace. What would he lose? He'd lose the blessing of God. Because God had told him to do the work and to finish the work and to complete the work. You see? Jesus said in the world you'll have an easy time. I love that verse. It's not what Jesus said. Jesus said in the world you'll have what? Tribulation. Acts 14.22 says through many tribulations uh, we must enter the kingdom of God. Um, I won't mention this man's name, but uh, he's a senior pastor of this church. (laughs) And recently, uh, and, and he won't tell you this, but I read something that was said about him in an evangelical magazine that wasn't true. It flat out wasn't true. But a lot of people read that and thought it must be true but it wasn't true. That's what you call slander, you see? It's one thing when the world does it. It's another thing when they do it inside the church. But you see, that's going to happen. That's a tribulation. Probably happened to you at some point in your life. If. Put it this way if your greatest concern is the approval of people, you better get out. Because your job, uh, the post that God has assigned you to, your job is not to get the approval of people, your job is to please the Lord. You see? You may be slandered, uh, there may be false charges. Uh, against you. There may be rumors going around about you. Do you know what it comes down to? Guys, do you know what it really comes down to? Let me tell you something. Jesus knows. He knows. They can all think it. They can all believe it. They can all read it. But you know what really matters? Jesus knows. And if Jesus knows your heart, and if Jesus knows what happened, that's all you need to know, is that He knows. Because you know what he will do? He will vindicate you. He'll do it. So you don't let them intimidate you by the fear of slander, you see. You don't let them intimidate you by threats. Uh, You keep doing the work that God has assigned for you to do. Here's what I got written in red on my sheet, so I won't forget it. Nehemiah defeated this temptation By keeping his eye on the fear of the Lord. Let me do that again. Nehemiah defeated temptation by keeping his eye on the fear of the Lord. We read this verse last week, but Proverbs Proverbs 16, 6 says, By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Nehemiah had a greater fear of God than he did of slander. Flip over to Genesis, just to keep you awake. You see this not just in Nehemiah's life. You see this everywhere in Scripture. You see it with all kinds of leaders. Here's an example for you is Joseph. Same principles illustrated in the life of Joseph. Genesis 39 is where we want to go. Let's go back to our first point on Nehemiah. There was a temptation to do what? To compromise. How many times did they, how many times did they attempt to get him to do that? Four times. Four times. Four times. In, in other words, the temptation was persistent. OK? Look at, uh, look at Genesis 39, note verse 6. And you know the story that uh, Joseph was sold in slavery by his brothers. Uh, If you look at verse 1, it says Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Uh, He was uh, purchased at an auction by Potiphar. Uh, Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. And basically, he starts running Potiphar's whole house because of his faithfulness. Look at verse 6. So he, meaning Potiphar, left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, so Joseph is wearing the whole shot for this guy. I mean, he's got the keys to the safe deposit box. Uh, he's got the che- he signs off on the checks. Uh, I, I, I mean, this. Used and said to his master's wife, "Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He's put all to the owns in my charge. There was no one greater in this house than I." And he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against Potiphar? Not what he says. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? See, Joseph, what did Proverbs 6 says? What does it say? It says this. By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Joseph had a greater fear of God than he did of Potiphar. He did not want to step on the holiness of God. He didn't want to trample on the grace of God. How how could I betray God and betray Potivar by sleeping with you? Now look at verse 10. And it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day. This wasn't a one-time shot. This didn't happen four times. This didn't happen 14 times. This happened day after day after day, after day. That's what you call persistence. See, temptation is persistent. Joseph was resistant. That's how it works. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Peter says. So, uh, I deduce from that, Gentlemen, that temptation isn't going away anytime soon. But 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 see what what motivated Joseph? What motivated Nehemiah? They had a greater fear of God than they did of of man. Let me show you something else about this guy. Let's keep going. Did I hear something? Yeah. What do you think that's a good question but what do you really think I'd say no because because see it comes down to character see what we know about God is the character of God God's holy God's righteous God's just you see God is good the Bible says Psalm 119 says God is good and does good uh, Hussein is a bully and a tyrant and a coward and a sadist, you see. So it comes down to character. You know what the fear of the Lord is? The fear of the Lord is just an awe and a respect. It's a reverence for God, you see. Uh, I, I talked last week about, I think it was last week, about having the fear of a father. I had a fear of my dad. That kept me out of a lot of things when I was in high school. Because my dad, told I knew my dad meant what he said. If I crossed the line, there were going to be consequences. And I guarantee you there were things I wanted to do and things that I was tempted to do that I did not do because I knew my dad would find out, and I did not want to deal with those consequences. The fear of my dad kept me from evil. Now, did my dad love me? You bet he did. Did my dad die for me? You bet he would. Did my dad beat me and abuse me? No. Did he take out a strap and nail me every once in a while? Yeah. You see? Discipline your son while there is hope. What removes foolishness from a child? Anybody remember? The rod. The rod. The rod is a biblical instrument. Did you know that? Rod comes in many different forms. Mrs. Lamert, my third grade teacher. <laughs> that little lady about five feet. I mean, I was more afraid of her than I was of Saddam Hussein. Nobody missed around in that class. A little tiny lady, about 65 years old. But Mrs. LeMert would say, Stephen, come up here. And she'd take out that ruler, and she would yeah. That's why this hand is arthritic <laughs> <laughs> to this day. She didn't have any problems in her class. I mean, she had no problems. She didn't have any kid hitting her. Didn't have any kid fondling a girl in the hall. None of that stuff went on because there was a fear of Mrs. Lemert. She was a godly Christian woman. When I saw in our church, I really got nervous. <laughs> That's true. You see, now she used she used the rod, uh, the ruler. My mom uh, used a yardstick. When we got older, my mom used to have a switch. She'd go off the backyard, get, a little, get one of those little, just little things like Zora. Yeah, boy, that thing just stung. And the fear of that, and knowing that if I cross the line, this person loves me enough to discipline me. So it's not a fear. It's not a terror. It's healthy discipline administered by someone who loves you. That's what the fear of the Lord is. You see, that makes sense. Good question. When we got older. My mom would use a yardstick. I tell you guys, she'd get out this yardstick. You know, I'm 14, 15, whatever, I'm horsing around. She'd get that yardstick out, and she'd, you know, she'd get, and i just sit there and flex, and I'd break it. That was great to break the yardstick. Then my dad would come home. <laughs> okay. Now, there's something else in Joseph's life. Um, uh. You know, slander was also an issue in Joseph's life. Let's look at verses 11 through 19 of 39. Now, it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. And she caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me, and he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me and I screamed and it came about when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside she's basically saying this guy came in to rape me Uh, so she left his garment beside her until his master came home then she spoke to him with these words the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came to me to make sport of me etc 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 look at verse 19 came about when his master heard the words of his wife which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me that his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. Joseph got slandered, and he got put in jail. But note, he did not compromise because his fear of the Lord was greater than his fear of slander. He did what was right, even if the consequences went against him. But notice, even though he was slandered and put in jail, look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made him to prosper. God will always bless the man who fears the Lord who honors the Lord, refuses to compromise biblical truth. You guys with me? You guys getting this? Okay. so what's going on in your life this week? What's going on in my life? What are you tempted to compromise? What are you tempted to negotiate on biblically? This is what we face all the time. There's a third one. I don't want to miss it, because I too wrote this in red. And I'm very impressed with my red ink tonight. Third principle is this: Nehemiah was tempted by an inside plot to entrap. Okay, here's his third temptation. He was tempted by an inside attempt to entrap. All right. So, what does Satan do? Satan, if he doesn't get you one, if he doesn't get you with the first arrow. There's another arrow coming. Didn't get you with a second, there's another one coming. Um, here's old Thomas Watson again. King James English, listen to this. Satan's diligence in tempting is seen in a variety of temptation he uses. He does not confine himself to one sort of temptation. He has more plots than one. If he finds one temptation does not prevail, he will have another. If he cannot tempt to lust, he will tempt to pride. If temptation to covetousness does not prevail, he will tend, tempt to excessiveness. If he cannot frighten men to despair, he will see if he cannot draw them into presumption. He, he's got a hundred arrows in his quiver. If he can't get you here, he'll try this one. If he can't get you there, he'll try this one. So now you get a third one. What's the third one? He's going to try and entrap him. It's an inside job. Notice, well, I'm in, I'm in the wrong book. Notice Nehemiah. I'm back in Genesis. Look at verse 10. And when I entered the house of Shemiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. This guy apparently was a priest. This guy, that's what it appears to be, or Nehemiah would have not have met with him. I don't have time to give you all the reasons for that. But for the sake of time, he wouldn't be going in the temple unless he was a priest. He says, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple. Now catch this. For they are coming to kill you. And they are coming to kill you at night. How would he know that? He was in, he was in cahoots with them. So, now there are two things. There are two things that are, are contained in what he said to Nehemiah. And, and, they're, very, and they're very simple. Um. And Nehemiah sees through the hypocrisy immediately. Number one, he urges Nehemiah to flee from Sambalat and Tobiah. That's not what a man of God would urge him to do. You need to run from these guys. You need to get away from them. Number two, he urges him to go into the sanctuary and lock the doors. Now, you know what the problem with that is? Numbers 3.10 and Numbers 18.7 says that only priests are allowed in the sanctuary. You need to flee from these guys. God wasn't saying that. Number two, go with me into the sanctuary we'll lock the doors. In other words, what I need you to do is I need you to go with me and violate the word of God. He's not buying this. Note what he says. Note his response. Verse 11, but I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Did you catch that? That they might have an evil report so that they could reproach me. One writer says this, this was a subtle temptation. If they could entrap him in sin, This would discredit him and his work. The people would cease to follow him, and the work on the wall would stop. Hmm. Just flip real quick. Flip over a couple books to your left to 2 Chronicles, verse 26. 2 Chronicles 26, there was a king by the name of Uzziah. It says in verse 1 of 2 Chronicles 26, he was made king when he was 16 years old. It says in verse 3, he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. It says in verse 4, and he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Verse 5, he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Then in verses 6 through 15, It talks about the magnificent achievements that he did through his dependence on God and how God blessed him. This guy was a leader that was seeking God, that was having an impact, that was doing a magnificent work for God. And I don't have time to read all those verses, but those verses contain the work that he was doing for God. Look at the end of verse 15. Hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. You know what happened when he got strong? He got arrogant. And Taylor, this guy we were talking about, this retreat, you know what came out? There was story after story after story about this gifted leader, brilliant man. And basically, you know what each story whittled down to? He was arrogant. Unbelievably arrogant. He got so arrogant that, in his own, that, that he started teaching doctrines that weren't in the Bible. He got so arrogant that he started teaching that what a man does in private is of no concern to anybody else in the church. Why would a guy preach that? Why? Yeah. Because he's got some gal in the church. And you know what he's doing with her. You see? This guy got arrogant. Uh, Uzziah gets so arrogant. Look at this, verse 16. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. What was it that Shemaiah tempted Nehemiah to do? Go into the temple. That's what Uzziah did. Uzziah went in, Nehemiah didn't. That's the difference between these two guys. Look at verse 19. You don't think God will take his hand, a blessing, off a leader? Look at verse 19. But Uzziah with a censer, oh oh no, I missed 18. I I missed 17. He's in there burning incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. Why were they valiant? Because they're taking on the king. And they're taking this guy on, because they've got a bigger king than this king who they're accountable to. And they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful. Notice they didn't compromise. Notice they weren't nice. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will have no honor from the Lord your God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. Doesn't say he was repentant. Doesn't say he was broken. He was enraged, and while he was enraged with the priest, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord, beside the altar of Look at 21, and Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. That's a tragic statement. The great work that Uzziah did, he was discredited, and the work came to a halt. That was a temptation from the enemy. So, gentlemen, um, these things were written for our instruction. Right? Let me ask you a question. I don't know if you ever thought about this. If you were the enemy, if you were the enemy, knowing you the way that you do, how would you try to entrap you? You ever thought about this? What would work with you? If you were the enemy trying to bring you down, what would you do? Because we've all got an Achilles heel. That's the area you want to look out for, you see? See, it comes down to this. You want to be a Nehemiah, or you want to be a Uzziah? We make that decision every day of our lives. God's called you to a work. We don't want the work to be discredited. Let's pray, and then we'll Break up into our groups, okay? Father, these things are uh, real, and they didn't just happen in the Bible; they happen all around us. Lord, uh, we know our hearts, and we concern ourselves because we know we're prone to wander and we're prone to leave the God we love. Lord, there is—Lord, Uzziah went to heaven, but he was—he was disciplined by you severely. And I, I'm sure, Lord, he lived all those years in sadness that uh, the work that he had been called to do came to a halt. Uh, he, he, had, uh, he had your mercy. Uh, Lord, forgiveness is free, but leadership is earned. And he forfeited his right to lead. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to you in brokenness and repentance, and we can find forgiveness. We've all made mistakes, legions of mistakes. Lord, uh, this week, let us remember these men in the Scripture. Let us remember how subtle the enemy is. Uh, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Nehemiah refused, Lord, to be just a hearer of the Word. He was a doer of the Word. He refused to go into the temple. He obeyed your word. Give us a heart to obey your word. Now as we break up, Lord, for prayer, may we encourage one another. May we bear one another's burdens as the scriptures tell us to do. May we hold one another's arms up, even as Aaron and her held up the arms of Moses. We ask in your name. Amen. What we usually do is just get two or three guys together. Just take a few minutes, share some prayer requests, no pressure, but it's a good thing to do. Let's go ahead and break up and introduce yourself around and let's do it.